my sermon today is going to be a little bit different. Um, I think it's going to feel to you less like a, you know, inspirational, rah-rah kind of message, and maybe a little bit more like a training seminar and mission. Um, I don't always take the kind of content that I'm about to give to you and use it in this setting, in a worship setting, but it's what God put on my heart this week, and uh, we'll see, we'll see how the Spirit leads, but I think um, I might be doing something similar to this the next two or three weeks, and I'll tell you why, it's just because I'm really burdened in this season that we are equipping missional people, equipping missional leaders um, to be gospel people wherever you are planted, right? This is a season not of gathering big crowds, but of dispersion. Well, we, we forget, but that's exactly how it was for the early believers in the New Testament. Our faith is built for this. Our faith is built for this moment. Um, when God poured out his spirit on his church at the day of Pentecost, uh, he was dispersing his power through his dispersed people. So we have the resources we need for this moment, um, but I, f I feel the burden as a leader to just keep equipping leaders, um, to keep serving you, to keep equipping you um, to be on mission wherever God has put you in this season. So to do that today, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17. Now, when the pandemic first started um, and we were completely online, some of you may remember we were... Uh, going live from different people's houses during the stay-at-home order, um, I did preach a message, preach a message, uh, you know, on my cell phone to you all on Acts uh, 17. And so I'm revisiting this text again, but for me, this has been so critical, uh, not only in understanding our role in mission, but also just having really practical tools to be able to use when we're engaging our neighbors, when we're engaging people at work, when we're engaging whoever God has put in our path, you know, when you're serving in the network, wherever it is God has put you in this season, um, this stuff has been really helpful for me. Um, so we may spend a few weeks in Acts 17. Acts 17 covers a portion of the Apostle Paul's uh, missionary journey. So he's traveling throughout the ancient world. There's a lot of reasons I love Paul. Paul is kind of remembered in the New Testament uh, for his theological ability because, you know, he wrote a good portion of the New Testament um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, but I love reading Paul because filled with the Spirit, um, he was such a genius missionary. Um, the way he approached culture, um, the way he was able to read context and speak to that context, um, the way that he was able to bear the good news of Jesus, the good news of the kingdom to a particular group of people is something that I admire in Paul. And it was no small feat because like for me, for instance, I've been ministering now for much of my ministry um, pretty much in the same community, you know, and trying to understand its context, its ecology, how it works, right? Um, but Paul was traveling from city to city to city to city and especially in the ancient world, in a far less globalized culture where culture isn't being shared over the internet or phones, as he's stepping into these cities, they would have represented very particular contexts, right? Very particular beliefs, very particular groups of people. And we're talking about having to pivot during the pandemic. Well, Paul had to pivot every time he stepped into a new city, you know, to understand what was happening there, what the spirit was doing, what this culture represented. 
He had to keep stepping into those spaces and pivoting. That ability, which he did in the power of the Holy Spirit, is something I admire, and I'm glad that the Spirit saw fit to record some of that in our scriptures so that we can learn from it together, right, as we are a family on mission as well. So in Acts 17, Paul ends up, just for a brief time actually, in the city of Athens, a city that prided itself on its intellectual ability, on the debate of philosophy, um, and he ends up presenting the gospel to them because he's been invited to speak basically to the intellectual elite of the city. Um, and invited into that space, he begins to tell them about Jesus. And just a word I want to say there, um, friends, I want you to know, and I'm not, um, I'm not just like hanging this over your head, as, as a leader in this community of people, um, I see it as part of my responsibility to equip you in these ways. Um, but the sharing of the good news of the gospel with people does require us using our mouths to do it, you know? Um, we do actually tell people about Jesus with our mouths, right? Um, I love the other things that we do as a family on mission. Because I, I believe, by the way, in the demonstration and the proclamation of the gospel. So I love when we demonstrate. Uh, when we demonstrate in our acts of service. Um, we are telling a gospel story when we serve. Um, one of our values is biblical justice. Um, I believe that when we enter um, you know, uh, those causes for justice that stand up for the weak and the oppressed, we are telling a gospel story. We are committed to these things. If you know our family on mission, you know that we are a family of activists, you know, because that's part of what it means to be on mission. You know, we get involved. We get our hands dirty. We serve and speak and all of this. But all of that is inadequate if it's not coupled with us actually using our mouths, not just our hands and our feet, to tell people why we do the things we do, right? We don't actually use our mouths to tell people about Jesus. Um, I'm saying service and justice are super important, but without the actual proclamation of the gospel, we are missing part of what God has called us to. Um, God has called us to those other, and I would say flip-flop um, is true as well. If all we did was proclaim but never put feet and hands to our message, right? We're missing on something too. If all we did was tell people about Jesus, but we didn't serve the poor, right? We're missing a big part of what it means to be on mission in the New Testament. And so both of these things are needed. And if you look at church history, throughout church history, there's kind of a pendulum swing. There's generations that really emphasize telling the gospel, but it seems like they're not out in the streets doing the gospel, right? And then there's generations that do a lot of doing of the gospel, but it seems like they proclaim less. We have to be both, right? Demonstration and proclamation. So I love this because Paul is uh, proclaiming. And this sermon, we call it a sermon, but really he's just presenting the gospel to these people. It's not like he's in a church or anything. Um, this uh, talk that he gives uh, to the people who have gathered is such a beautiful example of um, how to do this, how to be engaged in what the Spirit of God might be doing in a group of people. So let's just go ahead and read it. Acts 17, beginning in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. 
So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Um, The first point I'm going to make in just a moment, we're going to continue to read the passage, is that um, it, it sounds like it's in paradox to everything I just told you, but the proclamation of the gospel actually begins with listening. Um, it actually begins by not using our mouths, <laughs> but listening. If we're going to use our mouths effectively, we have to begin by not using them um, and listening well. And Paul has done this in his short stay in this city. He's walked around. He's observed. He, we know earlier in Acts 17 he's been distressed by some of the things that he has taken in. Um, it, he has had an emotional response to some of the things that he has seen, but he has taken the time to listen. We're going to say more about that in just a second. Verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Okay, now let's stop here. Notice that he begins to fill in for them the story of what God has been doing in the world and their part in it. And this is the second part of what I would say. We're going to talk about this some more today. The second part of what Paul does is he invites them into a story. Particularly, it's God's story. And he believes that God is inviting the story of the city of Athens, these people, into the story that he is writing in the world, right? So he listens first. He invites them into the story. And then the third thing, notice here, is he holds out to them the unique identity of Jesus, Right? Verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man, that's Jesus, he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And Paul holds out the resurrection of Jesus as part of the unique identity of Jesus, right? The resurrection is the affirmation, right, that this man is who he claimed to be, right? that this is God's chosen one, that this was the appointed one to save us from our sins. The resurrection is held out as proof of this, right? Okay, so I think I have these three things on the slide, Tim. First, he listens, then he invites them into a story, and then he holds out to them the uniqueness of Jesus. I might preach a sermon on each of these. We'll see. Today, I really want to focus on the listening part, but just a quick overview Paul spends time, to li- spends time listening to their experiences in the city. He spends time trying to understand their aspirations. I would say at the end of the aspirations of a group of people is typically the idolatry that they have bought into, right? Um, where they're trying to find significance or security or salvation, Right? At the end of the aspirations of this city is the, the, their particular form of idolatry. And not all idolatry is the same. We buy into different forms, our own versions of idolatry. Paul is trying to understand their particular version of idolatry that is the end, at the end of their search for meaning, right? He takes time to try to understand 
um, these people in that way. And then he notices, because idolatry always robs from us, um, it always leaves us wanting, it always leaves us empty, he tries to understand the particular need that this group of people has at the end of that idolatry. And he sees it in the observation that they have this statue to an unknown God. The city is literally littered with idols, filled with idols, this complex system of gods and goddesses, and he sees in this statue to an unknown God that these people are still not satisfied, right? That they put all of this effort into religion, all of this effort into you know, their pagan intellectual tradition, and at the end of this, they are still wanting, they are still empty. He identifies that point of need, right? And that's what he speaks to. And then he invites them into this story. Um, this is another sermon for another time. But he tells the story of, a God, of the gospel in a way that speaks to their need. And I think one of the biggest skills that we need if we're going to proclaim the gospel is to be storytellers. And by the way, this is not how I was trained to tell people about Jesus, um, and I'm not putting this down because I still lean on some of the early training I was given in some ways. But I was not taught to tell the story. I was taught to present an outline, you know. Um, and some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but some of you do, you know. Um, I was taught to memorize an outline and present it. I'm not putting that down. But what it meant was that I just spit out the same outline to whoever I was talking to, Right? these verses that I had memorized or whatever. Well, I think we have to learn the art of storytelling if we're going to tell people about Jesus, particularly God's story and how their story fits into it. That's a skill that we learn over time as we interact with people about Jesus. Jesus, by the way, was a storyteller, right? It's how he told the kingdom. He was always pulling. It's how he told people about the kingdom of God. He was always pulling out of his pocket. Or I guess maybe he didn't have pockets. I don't know what he had. But he was always pulling out, right, a story to tell someone about what the kingdom of God was like. And I think this is a skill that we have to recover. Another story for another time. And then he holds out. I am going to say a little bit more about this today. He holds out the uniqueness of Jesus. Because this is really the fault line, right, is acceptance or rejection of the Son of God. Jesus made the fault line his own identity, right? Um, if you receive the Son, you receive the Father. If you reject the Son, he says this in the Gospel of John, if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. The fault line is his identity, right? Um, and this is important to remember because this is the most controversial thing that we present to anybody, that we talk about Jesus, is the identity, Jesus' self-proclaimed identity, right? Proven in the resurrection. This is the most controversial thing. I would say that if the most controversial thing in a conversation with an unbelieving neighbor feels like our political ideology or our opinion on a social matter or whatever, we are placing the weight of the conversation on the wrong part of the conversation. The most controversial thing about us is not what we believe about politics. It shouldn't be. The most controversial thing about us is not our social opinions. It shouldn't be. Our bold claim is that Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He was the one sent from the Father. That is the most liberating, beautiful thing that we believe. It's also the most controversial thing we believe, right? And maybe this is why we shy away from some of these conversations is because it is inevitable that in conversations with friends, with family, with the people that God gives us, that this fault line is going to exist in the conversation. 
acceptance or rejection of the son. Other things, I'm not trying to win battles in conversations. I'm serious. I get into, when I talk to people about Jesus, and I talk to people about Jesus a lot, I get into less debates than I ever have because there's so many things I'm not interested in debating about really, you know? Um, but I am holding out to people a person, right? Jesus. And we all, all of us in this room, have had to wrestle with his claims about himself. Is he who he claims to be, right? Um, and if we have been baptized, our proclamation, right, at baptism is that Jesus is Lord, right? We have come to believe what he says about himself and brought ourselves in submission to that, right? So he holds out the uniqueness of Jesus. That's another sermon for another time. Or right now. <laughs> All right. Um, the loudest thing about us, though, guys, right, should be what we say about Jesus, right? It should never get drowned out in other things that we might have to say. The loudest thing we say is that Jesus is Lord, right? And by the way, we say it because we believe it because we have found our liberation under his lordship, right? This is the good news. This is the good news, right, that we offer the world. Okay, I want to talk just a little bit more, and I'm really going to do it by just rapid-firing some stories about this listening piece. Um, and, it, you know, I'm a storyteller. Um, you know that if you hang around me. So for some of you, you may have heard some of these stories before. I think I have a couple new ones today. Um, but I just kind of want to flesh out in real-life examples, and this is kind of the training part, what I think it means for us to listen well, to proclaim the gospel through listening first, before we even open our mouths to spend time listening. I said that Paul is listening to the experiences of the Athenians. He's listening to their aspirations. At the end of their aspirations is probably idolatry. He listens to their particular form of idolatry, and then he listens to where that idolatry has robbed them, right? And that's going to shape how he's able to tell them the story that God is inviting them into. Um, I think all around us, and it's hard to remember this, in a world where we are invited to use words as much as we are. We live in a very wordy world, right? And the proliferation of technology, right, has only meant this even more, right? And we're invited to use our own words so much that we have a tendency to always think it's righteous to use our words, right? <laughs> it's always, but in Scripture, sometimes it's righteous to use words. Sometimes it's righteous to be silent, right? Um, there's a kind of wisdom in listening, right, that, that the Scriptures present to us. And I think if we're going to understand what God is doing in someone's life, we have to listen. So let me give you some examples. Um, when I consume media, and I mean songs, um, books, um, the news, um, television shows, um, over the years, I've kind of tried to train my mind to make these things an exercise in having a conversation about Jesus with someone. Um, because likely, I'm eventually I'm going to sit with someone who's going to believe some of the things being presented here, right? Um, I want to learn to be able to converse with that, but that requires me to listen first. Um, you know, most pastors read a lot, or at least they probably should be reading a lot. Um, I spend a lot of time reading books not written by Christians. It's probably the majority of my reading in a year. 
And it's not because I don't want to read the Christian stuff or like try to understand you know, deeper theology, all of that. I love that stuff. I read that stuff too. But for the sake of mission, I want to learn to interact with ideas that are different than what I might believe, right? Um, and to listen for the experiences, aspirations, idolatries present in what I'm reading and try to know how to hold out the gospel to it. So songs are a great way to do this. Um, you know, uh, many of the guys that I work with in the community, when they want to express to me how they're really feeling, and I, I love this, actually. This is cool to me. Um, they will send me a song. Um, just yesterday, I hung out uh, with a guy. The uh, first time we hung out to, like, talk about Jesus, um, it kind of got connected. It really, like, prayer led to this interaction. It was cool how it all happened. But before we linked up, he sent me three songs. And he said, hey, these songs are how I'm feeling right now. I'll give you, like, a picture into my mind. Many of the guys I work with emote through the music that they listen to, right? And this music is a way for them to express themselves. So you better believe I listen to those songs, right? Like before we link up, um, I'm listening to those songs because he already told me how he was feeling, right? Like, like in these songs. So I'm going to listen to them, right? Um, he didn't send me this song, but I listened to this song with a friend recently, so I've been thinking about it. I'm um, the hip-hop artist J. Cole from... Fayetteville, North Carolina, where Rona's from over here. Um, J. Cole's super talented um, rap artist, and uh, he's a philosopher, a lot of socially conscious kind of stuff in what he raps. But I was in the car with a friend recently, and his uh, song came on, one of his songs came on. I forget what the name of the song is, actually, sadly. But I have some of the lyrics here. Listen to this. Sometimes I think pain is just a lack of understanding. Sometimes I think pain is just a lack of understanding. What do you hear in that? You hear an aspiration, right? Um, to have meaning assigned to pain. This is a very human thing, isn't it? Um, honestly, the ability of humans to suffer and be resilient in suffering is actually quite high, so long as we feel like it has meaning, right? Um, it's meaningless pain that causes despair, right? And so that is his fear, is that there's no meaning assigned to the pain. Sometimes I think the pain is just a lack of understanding. Now, J. Cole is a philosopher, right? As a matter of fact, many of the hip-hop artists I end up engaging through my friendships are just that. They are philosophers. Most musicians, no matter genre, unless they're making just like total, like, you know, fun, goofy stuff. Um, most of them are philosophers, right, and what they're presenting. Um, and so here he is, like, looking for meaning. Now, that's going to lead to a particular brand of idolatry, and in some ways it's actually similar to the kind of idolatry that the Athenians are experiencing, and it's the thought that if we just know, it says in Acts 17 earlier in the chapter, that they sat around all day and just debated the latest ideas. If we just understand more, if we just know more, if we just can wrap our minds, our culture has bought into this idolatry historically and to a certain degree. If we can just wrap our minds around it, if we can just understand it, there's no limit to our understanding, right? And if we just understand it, then it can be solved, right? Not believing that there's really any limit to our own intellect, right? Or that we would need to find salvation in the mind of God, right? And not just in our own minds. This is the next part of the lyric. If we could only understand it, would we feel no pain? And then listen to this statement. God must feel no pain. 
Is that true? It's interesting because there is the statement of, and by the way, J. Cole, I'm not, well, I'll say more about that in a second. I'm not putting this down. I'm just talking about what it means to listen. Um, yeah, J. Cole, it leaves him with a gap in the idolatry, right? This is his statue to an unknown God, right? God must feel no pain. So what does it look like then to begin to tell him the story of Jesus? Well, if he were sitting across from me, which that would be dope if I could meet him. Um, but if he were sitting across from me, um, this would be a great opportunity to talk about a God who identifies with pain, right? Who stepped into the story of pain. It, and by the way, the fact that we believe that God embraced pain in Jesus does not take away all of the mystery of pain. It is a consolation. It's not necessarily an answer, right? Um, but it is something that God identifies with this pain, that he has stepped into it, that he experienced every kind of pain that we've experienced, right? Um, J. Cole's kind of lamenting here that if that's what God is like, there's a distance that he feels, right? But if God has come in close to our pain, right, then that's a God that we can trust with our pain, right? That's a God that we can go to with our pain, because he has been through it too, right? But see, that affects the story that I'm going to tell him, right? If he's sitting across the table from me, right? I'm just not going to launch into an outline. I'm going to talk about the suffering of Jesus, right? Um, and what it means for him. Now, notice how I just fleshed that out for you. That is far different than just hearing a song, some lyrics, and going, that's wrong, right? And kind of writing it off. Um, and I would say that very many Christians, very many churches are preaching the law, but they are not preaching the gospel, right? Now, that means that we know how to voice what's right and what's wrong, right? And we do it in politics, we do it on social media, we do it in conversation, we know how to talk about what's right and wrong, but we don't know how to hold out to people the good news of the gospel, and I'm not just preaching the law. The law is important. We should hold out what's right and wrong, right? If J. Cole were sitting across from me, I would want to tell him, well, actually, God has experienced pain, right? I would want to say that to him. Um, and yet, I'm not just saying that in a dismissive way, right? I want to be able to hold out to him the good news, too, right? That God has experienced pain. You see what I'm saying when I'm talking about listening to people? Let me give you some other examples of things that I've experienced here. Um, some, this is one of my go-to stories. So some of you have heard it before. One time I was at a restaurant uh, with a friend. We were talking about Jesus, and this Wiccan witch came up to me. Um, by the way, if you don't know what that is, um, it's a form of, like, white magic. Um, I just heard a statistic this last week that there are now more self-identified witches in the United States than Buddhists. It's a, a lot in Beaver County. It's a growing, right, kind of, it's like an earth-like kind of pagan kind of religion. Um, and by the way, if you wonder what it looks like to have a Wiccan witch come up and sit next to you, uh, she looked like a totally normal person who just came up and sat next to us, <laughs> right? Um, and so she came and sat down and began to talk. Um, and get this, this should be telling for us in talking about the proclamation of the gospel. I'll never forget this comment. Um, she said to me, I grew up in Rochester, PA, right down the river here. I grew up in Rochester, PA. I have never had a real conversation with a Christian. And I am so curious about what you believe. Would you mind if I sat and asked you some questions? She grew up in Rochester, Pennsylvania, never had a friendship with a Christian. 
Friends, let me just say for a moment, we do not really, most churches and church people, do not know that these people exist in our community. We think everyone knows. Friends, there's so many people who do not know. There's so many, so many, so many people who do not know. What does it say in Romans? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear unless someone is sent to them, right? Um, There's so many people who don't know, and this woman is open. This isn't someone who's like trying to attack us or something. She's open, right? (laughs) She's open to conversation, right? And so she sits down and begins to talk, and as I listened, what I heard in her was a few things. A desire for power, particularly in a certain kind of power. Because Wiccans, their belief is that they've embraced a form of white magic to what? To help people. She's she's embracing a certain kind of power over what? Suffering. This is a very human thing. I'm sick. What do I do? My relationship is broken. What do I do? It's a very human thing to be looking for power, right? Right? To address these things. And this journey led her into this belief system. Now, here again, listening does not look like Wiccan is wrong. Boom, end, done, right? By the way, I think there's all kinds of dangers, right, in embracing the spirit world, right, without, uh, w- without being in submission to Christ. I think there's all kinds of dangers in that, right? Um, And yet, I'm listening for where her aspirations are, to have power over suffering, um, where it's led her into, um, you know, into places that, you know, I might disagree with, and where that has left her wanting, right? Because it was clear she was still searching. But I also held out to her the uniqueness of Jesus. So we talked for a long time, and she actually, I find if you listen to people well, they will bring the conversation to this point most of the time. And eventually, she said to me, she said, you know, I access power through these different stones I have. Each stone represents a different goddess. Um, And so, you know, I access power through these. And she goes, you know, for you as a Christian, like, where do you access power? And I said, well, I would only go through Jesus, you know. Um, I would only use Jesus. And I told her, I said, here's why. Um, Number one, I think my belief is he's the only one who has authority, like, over that kind of power. I think that's his unique position, right, to hold out the uniqueness of Jesus. Um, And he's the only one I would trust, you know? Um, I wouldn't want to mess with the world of spirits and demons, right, without the protection of Jesus, right? I want to be in submission to him. It's the only safe way to interact with that, right, at all. And sure enough, in this case, that was the most controversial thing I said to her, you know? Um, She said, you're telling me you would only use Jesus' name? And I said, yes, he's the only one I would use. And you could feel the frustration rising up. The conversation was still good, but you could feel the, conver- the frustration rising up in her, right? Because it is the most controversial thing that we hold out, right? Um, that Jesus is unique in these ways. Recently, Devante, some of you know Devante? Most of you do. He, um, uh, he and I had a conversation with a Muslim man who wanted to meet with us. Long story how this got set up, but this man grew up in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, he grew up in Mecca, um, where Muslims try to take their pilgrimage. His dad is an imam and kind of high up in the power structure in Mecca. He came here for his education. Now, I knew I was meeting with this guy, and I knew he was a Muslim student, but this is where listening is so important. How do I listen to someone like that well? Do I Wikipedia Islam? You know? And by the way, I love Wikipedia. I love random facts, you know? 
Um, any movie we watch, like if it has like a historical theme or whatever, I miss the movie because I'm like Wikipedia and things. So I can try and like understand. So I love Wikipedia, but Wikipedia is no substitute, right? Or the Encyclopedia Britannica, if that's what you prefer, is no substitute, right, for listening to the person in front of me. Um, because this man's story was far more complex than some article I read about Islam online or a class that I took in college on Islam or so on and so forth. There's no getting around listening to the people in front of us. So this guy, when he came to the United States, pretty much ended up leaving the faith. Um, he wasn't practicing anymore. He was struggling if he should identify himself as a Muslim or not. And it was a hard issue for him because his family... Uh, was deeply involved, you know, in this religious structure. So he had some concerns. As a matter of fact, one reason he was meeting with us is he was seeking some legal help um, because his student visa was running out and because of his changing religious convictions, he was afraid, you know, of some of the consequences, you know, that might be present if he returned back home. Um, but as he shared with me, he shared with me that the biggest issue for him was the way that he had seen religious power used against people. And let me be clear, this is not just a Muslim problem. Um, this has been a problem in Christian history as well, right? He had seen religious empire exercise its influence to oppress and hurt people. So you know what he ends up saying to me? He says, I don't know what I believe about like religion right now. He said, but all throughout history, I see that God raises up prophets to speak against the religious system on behalf of the poor and the vulnerable. And he said, if I think there's anything true in religious history, it's these prophets who get raised up, you know, to speak truth against that system. Um, and he looks at me and says, I think Jesus was one of those prophets. Well, there it is. There's a way to begin the conversation, right? To take the aspirations, right, that he wanted, which was liberation from these oppressive systems, to, at the end of that, notice where it's left him lacking, right? All religions promise freedom, but many times they end up oppressing, right? And so it's like, let's find where that gap is, right? And then let's start to have a conversation about Jesus there. And sure enough, he ended up asking me, do you think that, and he was very intelligent, so he, was, it, it, like, he brought the conversation to this point. He ended up saying, do you think that Jesus's claims are true about himself, that he is more than just a prophet, and I said, yeah, I, I, that is what I believe, you know? And there I am holding out the unique identity of Jesus. And by the way, at the end of that conversation, my friend um, left. Uh, we were sitting in Dunkin' Donuts in Aliquippa. Um, when, we, when we left, he said to me, he said, I've never, I'll, I, these are the comments I don't forget. He said, I've never talked with a pastor. And, you know, for a lot of his life, he wasn't around any pastors, not Christian pastors, right? They ended up here in the United States. He said, I've never talked with a pastor who listened to me, right, who was willing to hear me. And by the way, in that space of listening is also the cultivation of friendship, even if we don't believe the same things, right, is mutual respect, right, um, is a space where we can actually exist in relationship even if we're in a different place, right, um, and maybe that's what speaks more than anything else is just the humility, right, of being able to listen. Um, I don't know if I'm ever going to see him again, but I'm glad that, like, we got to have that conversation together. Um, one time I was talking to a guy from the streets. Uh, he had been selling drugs and had kind of abruptly left that behind. 
And um, yeah, through, it's always through these divine circumstances I end up in these conversations. And uh, we ended up talking together, and he said to me, he's like processing all this, like, um, you know, all these religious feelings and religious language that he's trying to express to me what's happening in his life. And at one point he says, um, he says, yeah, you know, I think it's like karma. And then he went on to talk about this experience he had. Now, karma, I should have, I like, double-checked on this because it was fuzzy in my mind. Karma is a Hindu concept, right, I think, Hindu concept. Um, now, he uses the word karma, and this example is going to seem so obvious to you, but it highlights my point. He uses the word karma. Am I then supposed to Wikipedia Hinduism and try to understand his Hindu belief? No, because he's not Hindu, right? Um, why is he using the word karma? Where do you think that came from? Yeah. <laughs> John Lennon. <laughs> yeah. Listen, he's getting this word from media, right? This is an Eastern religious concept that has made its way into popularized media. He's just getting it from pop culture, right? So I'm not going to get hung up on what a word means in a context that he is. Online people, don't worry. We got your back. All right. <laughs> Did you zoom in on that, Kira? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I'm not going to get hung up on this word that he used if it's not in a sign and definition to it that he doesn't mean by it, right? Um, I want to know what he means by that word, right? And he probably isn't professing to me some belief in Hinduism, right? He's probably talking to me about part of his story, right? where he has experienced, you know, a certain thing, and he's trying to tell me that. I'm not going to get hung up on the term. The question is not, what does that word mean in the dictionary? The question is, what does this word mean in his experience, right? I want to listen to this in his relationship. So now, let's bring it real close home. Um, in the conversations, the debates that our culture is happening right now, um, a phrase that gets used by a social movement, like Black Lives Matter, let's just talk about that for a second because I'm seeing a lot of Christians get hung up on their conversations with people, like surrounding this term. It is a common thing in social movements, right, for a phrase to be used broadly by, a group, by different groups of organizations, by different people. So that phrase, Black Lives Matter, right now, and you could, I don't know where you all stand on this stuff, you could wish it was different. We might wish, you know, our terms were clear, but it's just not how social movements work. It's not how society works. We have to listen, right? So there are Christians right now using that term in ways that I would look at and think, what a righteous way to use that term, right? Um, what a righteous way to bring Christians to the table at that conversation. And in, in the uh, march towards social justice, Christians should be at the table, right? Um, we should have been, uh, you know, we should be involved in that stuff. We should be there, right? This fits with our values. It fits with our values here at the Gospel Tab, that we believe in biblical justice, right? Um, 
And so I see that phrase being used in ways that I think, I can get on board with that, right? On the other hand, you might have someone, an unbelieving neighbor, use that term with you, and it means something very different. And maybe you can't agree with all of it. So let me give you an example. Um, Thank you, Steve. I'm seeing Christians right now, if they don't know what the term means, they're doing the Wikipedia method, right? Except not Wikipedia. They're going to an organization called Black Lives Matter. Thank you. And, oh, now the Lord is really speaking. (laughs) Um, uh, They're going to an organization and looking at its statement of beliefs. Now, listen, we are a church that believes in the authority of the Bible, right? It's one, also one of our values. Justice is one of our values, so is the Bible, right? We say it in our own statement that we prefer leaders who model submission to the Bible's authority, right? Um, and so that's where we're coming from. Right now, this is a church where if one of you would stand up and prophesy, um, which we believe can happen, right? Someone stands up under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and gives a prophetic word. We embrace that. We believe in it. But how do we know if that prophetic word is true or not? We're going to compare it to what? The scriptures, right? Because the Spirit would never inspire you to utter something prophetically that contradicts his own word, which he wrote, right? Um, So we uphold the authority of scripture. If that's how we believe about prophetic words, it's what we believe about the Gospel Tab's value statement, Um, we've tried to make sure our value statement is submissive to the word of God, but if you find something in it that contradicts the word of God, you should tell us, right? Because at the end of the day at the Gospel Tabernacle, the word of God is going to win, right? Not our value statement, right? Um, When we wrote our value statement, we littered it with scriptures because we wanted to model a a submission to the authority of the word of God, right? That's what we believe. So I want you to know, as a follower of Jesus, it is appropriate to look up the value statement of an organization, any organization, a church or any social movement, and compare it to the word of God and say, okay, does this share God's vision? So, for instance, one of the things that I'm hearing Christians bring up again and again is uh, the organization Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, not everyone who uses that word even has anything to do with that organization, right? It's being used in a bunch of different ways. But for the organization itself, uh, there's a statement on the family. And that statement has some strong things to say about sexual ethics. It has some strong things to say about the nuclear family, meaning like kind of the traditional vision of, of, you know, a married couple with kids. It has some strong things to say about that. And it says that it's decentering the nuclear family. Now, here again, we have a choice, right, to look at that. This is just where my missional thinking goes, and it's been kind of years of just like uh, training myself to be in this mode when I'm absorbing information like this, right? I could just say, well, some things about this are wrong. I disagree. End of story, right? Or I could think someday I may be sitting across the table from someone who really, who really is embracing this value system. By the way, can I just tell you, just let's talk context in Beaver County for a second, so far, and I'm, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but so far I have not had a conversation with one of my African-American brothers or sisters who's using that term as some kind of um, allegiance to that particular organization, right? Um, they often mean something different. I think we have to acknowledge that if we're going to stay involved, right, in these conversations. Um, 
But let's say I did. Let's say I'm sitting with someone who's like, every word of this statement for me is the truth. You know, every single word of this statement. Well, here's what I see. I don't just see what I might disagree with. Because let's be honest, people say, people say that Jesus, like you'll see these statements, you know, Jesus cared about justice. He never talked about sex or the family or whatever. You know that's not true, right? Like Jesus had a lot to say about those topics as well as justice, right? So he had things to say about sex. He had things to say about the family. And Jesus does present to us a vision of what the kingdom looks like. When God is ruling, here's what the family looks like. When God is ruling, here's what our sexual relationships look like. Absolutely, Jesus addresses those things. And yet, when I read that statement, um, you know, on the BLM website, I hear something missing. And it's the desire for family, particularly for people who don't fit that tradition, right? Who don't fit, like, that, that nuclear, like, kind of paradigm. Like, where do they, are, are they, and, and you know what, this is very, like, real and personal, even for a church like ours, because I've had to process with so many single people just how they do not feel welcome in churches where everything is designed to serve the nuclear family. See, church environments have their own idolatries, right? And sometimes we've built our entire church systems, right, to serve a nuclear family, right? And in the process, it's probably well-intentioned, but in the process, we miss people, right, who don't fit that, who are single, or maybe just who have a complicated story of one form or fashion in this area, um, we end up missing people. And I look at the family Jesus formed. Jesus' family on earth, was it just a nuclear family? No. He called these disciples to himself. As a matter of fact, there were times that Jesus' own nuclear family rejected him, right? Um, when Jesus didn't even have that, right? So he called these disciples to himself. And, and while completely staying within what Scripture teaches about family and sex and all that, he formed a family, extended the definition of family that was not just dependent on blood, right? On us being related to it. We should be, we should be that, right? We should be the place that is a family for people who don't have families, right? We should be a place for people who are on the margins. We should be the place for people who don't fit. So I think we could just point out what we believe is wrong in some of these things that we find ourselves in the cultural moment, or we could listen for where the need is, where people are still wanting, where they're still lacking, and hold that out to them. Are you tracking with me? Are you seeing what I'm saying? And so I think this is true even in the hardest conversations of our time. I brought up BLM because I think we have to be thinking missionally about some of the things that we are facing as a culture. Are we going to miss what God is doing in this moment? I heard someone say this last week, and it's, it's an overgeneralization, but I think it will resonate with you. He was saying, our nation now, there's kind of two nations in the United States. There's the CNN nation and the Fox News nation, right? Our role as Christians is not just to identify with one of those nations. Come on. It's to identify with the kingdom of God. And you might not be able to help it. You might agree more with one place than another place, but if you are doing that, Instead of just defending the place you come from, I think it's our responsibility as followers of Jesus to ask what Jesus is doing in the other group of people. To ask what Jesus is doing in the people that are different than us. And to listen to them and to find a place to join Jesus in what he's doing. 
And some of us are so intent on just stating what's right and what's wrong and defending the boundaries of the little tribe that we've associated with, right? That we actually write off any opportunity to be able to see what Jesus might be doing. Paul disagreed with plenty in Athens. It says in Acts 17 he was distressed by what he saw. He disagreed with plenty, but he stayed close enough relationally, right, to be able to listen, to be able to understand the particular needs that this group of people was saying so that he could tell them a story, right? Okay, here's how I'm going to end. Um, I think, um, and then, Steve, are you closing this, sir? Perfect. Um, Anthony, could you come play, brother? Thank you. I appreciate it. I think, um, well, I, I had this thought. You may be sitting here thinking, like, wow, these are really kind of diverse experiences, right? My Muslim friend, um, my friends from these different political persuasions, this Wiccan person, right? Um, and by the way, this is all like in Beaver County, friends. These aren't mission trip stories. Um, I'm telling you about Beaver County, Pennsylvania, um, people that I've interacted with. Um, and I have often wondered, why do I, how do I end up in these conversations? I know some of you feel the same way about your own conversations. It's like, how do I end up in all of these conversations? You know what I think? And I, I experience this sometimes in prayer when I'm like praying for my friends that I want to talk to about Jesus. Um, I think that whether we join him or not, Jesus is at work in the lives of people who disagree with us. He's, in the, he's at work in the lives of even our enemies. He's at work in the lives of people who believe something different than we believe. Um, he's at work in all these places. And we got to recognize it. That's another sermon for another time too. But we got to recognize it because this is some of what it means to be peacemakers in the world, is to recognize where Jesus is at work in different groups of people. Um, listen, our vision for justice, whatever it is, cannot look like just shouting the other side down. Um, it can't. Um, it has to look like identifying um, it, what Jesus is doing in that group of people, right? And cultivating that, right? It has to look like embracing our enemies. Um, our vision of justice is far more radical than just a fight for power. It means actually making room for our enemies, right? And this is some of what God has called us to. I think when we embrace the heart of God and being peacemakers and telling the good news of Jesus to people and recognizing and listening for where Jesus is at work, um, I think that God begins to send people to us. This is what it has felt like to me. I think, I think Jesus is ready to send you relationships. I really do. It's not about being like extroverted. It's not about like, I don't know, being some kind of special person. I found all these stories felt like God just like plopped people in my lap. My Wiccan friend, we were eating at a restaurant. She came to us. You know what I mean? We were just eating at a restaurant. She came to us. God does this over and over and over again, right? I found, I think, it's just something I'm suspicious of in the heart of God. I'm suspicious that God is looking for people who are humble enough, safe enough to listen because this is Jesus's story. And I don't think he's looking for some Christian to co-opt his story with, by not listening and just spouting off some um, outline to a person, right? 
That's what, no matter what outline we memorize, Jesus was already at work in the life of this person. Our task is to discern what he's been doing in that person, where he's creating hunger in them, right? And I think if we can be humble enough, slow enough, careful enough to listen, um, then I think God wants to send people that he loves dearly, you know? People from different political parties, different religious backgrounds, different family experiences. I think he wants to send people that he loves dearly to us so long as we're slow enough, careful enough, humble enough to listen to what he's already doing in the life of the person, okay? All right, I think we're going to hit these other two some other time. Steve, could we close out? Thank you. Joel mentioned at one point um, liberation through lordship, through Jesus' lordship. And he's looking for something right now, I think. Um, liberation through the lordship of Jesus. It's, it sounds like a paradox, huh? Like submitting to Jesus in order to become free. Um, but we find that in Scripture because he's a benevolent king, and it's through Jesus that we experience our freedom. We sang that song about the new wine, um, that it's through surrender, it's through trusting in Jesus that new power comes and replaces what was a block, right, before we surrendered. Um, I really believe that Jesus' grace is here um, for meeting us in a place of surrender. Um, for those online watching, for those here, uh, including myself, just that um, the Lord wants us to avail ourselves to surrender. You know, I was thinking of this week, the rich young ruler. Um, some of you may know that story uh, where a young man comes up to Jesus and he says, um, you know, he's followed all these laws, but Jesus says, one thing you lack, uh, go and sell all your possessions, give to the poor and follow me, for he owned much property. And yet Jesus said, there's one thing you lack, and it was that he owned. <laughs> but it wasn't the property he owned, right? It was his issue, in his case, that he lacked faith in Jesus as provider. He lacked trust in Jesus' provision in his case. And he wasn't willing to let go of that by surrendering in order to come into the fullness of what Jesus was offering, right? And so I just want to posture our hearts to do that this morning. I believe that the Lord is going to meet us in that place. And what I'm asking us to do is to ask the Holy Spirit, and I'll lead us in this to highlight any place uh, in which we need to surrender um, to Him, uh, trusting Him to provide, having faith for um, Him as provider.